This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. This is Design School. On this episode, we talked with Annabelle Gould, an associate professor in the Division of Design at the School of Art, Art History and Design at the University of Washington in Seattle. Annabelle talks about the balance between being a designer and an educator, about how experimentation and the details of craft are critical to the design process, and the importance of finding your authentic purpose and voice in the ever-broadening field of design. Annabelle Gould, thanks so much for joining us on This is Design School today. I'm really excited to talk to you and hear more about your story that I never got to learn when I was in grad school with you. Well, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to start off the conversation just by hearing what your story in design was. How did you find design? Well, I actually thought I wanted to be an architect, and mm. I didn't actually know what design was. I'd never heard of design, but I, I went to the College of Design, which was at NC State in, uh, in Raleigh, and I was lucky enough there in my first year that they make you do projects in all the different disciplines, so there's mm. landscape, architecture, graphic design, et cetera, and we did a project. I think I must have been interpreting um, an art movement, and it was the color and the letters, I thought, wow, this is cool. Um, and I just resonated with me much more than architecture. And so that was kind of my path. I was lucky enough that the College of Design is a pretty strong graphic design program. And so, yeah, graduated and then went on to New York, um, worked there for four years doing print work for financial clients at the time, you know, JP Morgan, Oppenheimer Funds, et cetera. They were all kind of just spending a lot of money on mutual funds. You learned a lot about printing and, and that kind of thing. And that was the time when David Carson became sort of the, the coolest designer that everybody wanted to be. I think the line to see him when he came to the Cooper Hewitt was like wrapped around the block multiple times to get in and hear him talk about his view on design. I remember thinking like, that's who I want to be, is <laughs> David Carson. When in fact, I'm nowhere close to David Carson. I couldn't design my way out of a paper bag if I had to be like him. But then I decided I wanted to go to grad school and both my parents are teachers, so I knew that eventually I'd want to teach, but it felt like the right time to go to grad school. And Cranbrook, which is where a number of my teachers at NC State had gone, was where I thought I'd go. And I, on paper, Yale actually seemed like a better fit, but I ended up at Cranbrook. I'm really happy I went there, but I think I expected to go to Cranbrook and turn into David Carson, and that didn't happen either, and that's okay. I just sort of, you realize more and more what your roots are, and so, yeah, I came out in the height of kind of the dot-com boom, mm -hmm. and still love print, so I tried to do print and web, and that took me to LA, and then, you know, straddled that world for a while, and then I came up to, to UW to teach. Mm -hmm. And... Did you know you wanted to teach when you went to grad school? I think I did. I don't think I thought about it as a full-time thing. I think mm -hmm. I, I liked professional practice. I've always liked practice. So actually, that's the reason I came to UW is 
faculty there are meant to do research of some kind. And so I would not have gone to a school where you just teach. I feel pretty strongly that you need to be rooted in some area of the discipline outside of teaching. Otherwise, I'm not doing my students much good. Mm-hmm. So I, I really appreciated the fact that at least when I came to UW, it was clear you're expected to practice. You're expected to do something within the discipline as well. So that's been good. I taught at Art Center when I was in LA. So I mm. would consult two days a week, design books another day, and then teach at Art Center and Otis. And so, so that was good. I don't know what in grad school you learn that helps <laughs> you be a teacher, though. I think that's sort of a question like, what, what qualifies me to teach? What qualifies you to teach, mm. Chad, after going through our grad program? Is it just the act of teaching another class? So... One of my longtime mentors, Meredith Davis, she has a degree in education. Like, what what on earth makes makes us qualified to yeah. grad school to teach? It's a strange. That's not how elementary school teachers work. So, what what is it that <laughs> makes us teach? I'm not sure. Yeah, and even now, as a longtime longtime educator, Karen and I have had this debate before discussion. If you ask me what I do, I'll tell you I'm a designer. Mm-hmm. And then I happen to teach. Yeah. Karen will identify herself as an educator who happens to be in design. Mm. So I still, even though my job since 2003 has been, you know, a, a professor in the University of Washington, I still think of myself as a designer first. Really? Yeah. Um, and that's just the education part of it is extremely important to me. But I, I don't know what qualifies me to be a teacher. And you know, we bring in guests all the time. And there is a there is a difference. I, I think the professionals that come in, maybe they're not as comfortable with the timing of a critique or responding to students' needs or recognizing what sort of feedback they need to give in a way that, I don't know if the students, because at the University of Washington, we have the same group of students multiple times, so they come to know us, like us, hate us, whatever it is. They're stuck with us for multiple <laughs> classes. And so there's just a different vibe um, being in a community where you're having the same students over and over again. So you, you identify as a designer first, but an educator second. Um, how did that play a role in being part of the AIGA Design Educators Committee? Yeah, so I was on the DEC, Design Educators Community Steering Committee, from for about five years. I rolled off last year, and I was the co-chair for two years. And it's an interesting way to connect with other educators who all come from very different programs. And this is where you start to see how many more design programs there are out there now compared to even when I went to school. And the needs are very different. You know, you've got people who are teaching by themselves, in the middle of no man's land, someone in a community college, someone who's doing online things, and the the needs are quite diverse, and that's been a challenge. I mean, I think I've I'm I'm starting to sort of realize how much I'm doing in design education, but I take it for granted that I'm still thinking personally, like what's the next book I'm going to design, mm-hmm. what's the next thing I'm going to do, because I feel like that's where I should be contributing, and I forget that. I see 24 kids, you know, Monday, Wednesday, you know, twice a week and for a number of years. And that that is where my impact can be or that I'm training that group and that group should be the ones I should be mostly focused on. That's not to say I don't 
care or that I phone it in in any way. I just think for me personally, there's some satisfaction in still making things. Yeah. And I find as a teacher, I love watching what the students can make, but I miss, I miss making myself. Mm -hmm. And so back to the AIGA question, I enjoyed connecting with people. You know, it's a crazy kind of phone call once a month. You've got 10 people kind of talking over one another. Um, the common goal, of course, is to advance design education, you know, within AIGA. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's been an interesting group of people. It's been nice to meet people that are in different programs. I kind of admire the, the, the way that you identify yourself as well as the way that you've been engaged with AIGA all these years. Um, I would say that being a designer first is being a teacher uh, or being an educator because you have to be uh, skilled in what you do. You have to be a master of what you do. And those that actually do it are the ones that are the true uh, professors, the ones that can really say, here's how it's happening right now because I'm in it. Yeah. And this is what you should know. Well, there's a, there's a quote that I enjoyed. I forget who I could attribute this to, but it was sort of to teach us to think twice because hmm. you have to know the stuff but then you have to be able to explain it to someone else and that is often the challenge of you know I've had creative directors before I became a teacher who's like I, it's not right I can't tell you why it's not right but it's just not right and that's not super useful feedback for mm -hmm. a student or for anybody and so being able to articulate to someone like think about this this or this and be able to do it in a really short amount of time yeah, yeah. Uh, which you can appreciate Chad when mm -hmm. you have 60 students twice a week how do you kind of reach reach and say it succinctly um, so I think over time I've probably gotten better at that being able to recognize it mm -hmm. but also there's a challenge of sort of bite your tongue like it would be easy and critique and you've probably seen this at the dinner table when you're with a group of friends there's probably someone that's always quick to make the comment or jump in and then there's other people that sort of sit back and wait and then you know make a comment and I tried not to be the one that jumps in right away I try to make the students talk first oh yeah um, <laughs> but there's other educators that jump right in and it's just that fine balance of making the students figure things out mm -hmm. first before you come in there's still that feeling and Chad I and JP I imagine you feel this too that students, especially early on, feel like you have the right answer and you're just waiting to give them the right answer. And the more I teach, the I mean, I can tell you sort of best practices in my experience, but I don't I don't have the answer, nor do I want to have the answer. That's mm -hmm. a little boring. Yeah. I've come to explaining to the students at the end, after they've given the critique, I tell them, so my personal opinion, and then I continue, and mm -hmm. then I say, now, professionally, here's what you should write, or here's what you should say, or here is what is common practice. So that way they understand that I have a personal bias that I am expressing to you. Sure. So you should know, do not follow me just because I'm saying it, but hear me, here's why I'm doing it. And then here is me as an educator telling you, here's the research to do or to uh, experience what what you should in order to make your own decisions. And I found that that's, that's starting to, to teeter, you know, uh, closer to them thinking of me as one of the students' voices and not just the one on, on high yeah. giving them the answer. And have you found that different levels of students respond to that? Like the, 
The freshmen and sophomores seem very concerned with kind of what's their grade. Oh, yeah. What, <laughs> oh, yeah. What's going to happen? You know, am I going to get into the program? Mm -hmm. By senior year, I think they've, they've tired of us. <laughs> I view a student, you know, even by this is what spring quarter now, so the students are getting ready to go out. And I think the best success is a student where I'm thinking, you don't really need me anymore. You're, you're ready. You can, you can make the jump. Um, I think I can always critique you know, till the cows come home, typography and color and composition. But I think there's some students, it's pretty satisfying that you can just go, yeah. Yeah. They, they've learned all they can from me. It's time to move on. Ready to fly from the nest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tell well, we're my, kicking them out in June, well, whether they want yeah, to or not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I tell the uh, seniors, especially because it's a smaller group of, of students in that class, that um, by the time that they get here, the comfort and the... The, the hand-holding that they have received in the, in the earlier stages is not in here. This one is the criticism. This is highly yeah. critical of everything you're doing, and you should not expect the praise. You should assume there is praise by the fact that I am critical by right. the way you look at things. And it takes a, a couple of weeks to, to get through that, but after a while, they, they understand it, and I think they expect that of each other at that point as well. Yeah. I think when Chad was one of my students, uh, he was a good example of that, that once you got to a certain level, it's like, why are you looking for his approval yeah. when you should be looking for him to find the mistake in order to make you better? Yeah. There's a book, it's a, one of the Paul Arden little small books mm -hmm. that has these little phrases in there, but in there one of them is, and I give this to the sophomores and I remind them of that over the years, is like, seek criticism, not praise. So I get really tired of hearing, and we, we talk about this with each class, like, don't tell us what you like. It's not about like, it's about whether it works or not and whether it functions, does it satisfy the criteria, and beyond that, is it engaging? So I don't, I, you know, students are always like, I really like how that's done, or I like this, like just, who cares? It's not about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you should want the criticism and not the praise. Yeah. So that's how it gets better. Mm -hmm. Well, but at the end of the day, like, you know, I always think that there's room for both because the magic in design, right, comes from all of those different levels working together, yeah. like yeah. all the way down from like the high level system of it all the way down to the rag and the joy and things yeah. looking nice, right? Like that to me is all part of the magic. So mm -hmm. we have to figure out how not to lose the craft of it. I guess I feel like there is more experimentation happening. I think it's got a lot to do with technology, how ideas are being presented, code. I'm not sure, maybe there aren't any new ways to present you know, a poster. It's not about a poster really anymore. I think systems are a big part of it, reaching people. So it's, it's words, it's ideas more than just form. Mm -hmm. Well, and it also tracks with new mediums. It's like, you know, the web's getting to a certain point where it has patterns in places yeah. that people expect. So there's a little less room. I mean, I feel that professionally oftentimes is sure. like, I get, I get stuck in like, Oh, like the, this has to go here. This has to go here. Yeah. Like, um, to make it usable. Right. Uh, or at least easily usable. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there's these other new mediums cropping up that, you know, I feel like there is experimentation that we don't know what to do with yet. Right. Um, you know, AR, XR, you know, sure. whatever you want to call it. But, and those are just, you know, 
I think even I, as a designer, I'm like, well, I'm not sure what to do with that yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and what's your, what your social responsibility yeah. is too. I mean, I, like I said, I was in the dot-com boom in the late nineties and this was when gobs of money was being thrown at websites. And yeah. our job was to sort of find the, the trickiest, coolest way to create the navigation so when eBay came out and it was just a list of links across the top, it was like, wow, that's so boring. How could yeah. people want that? Mm-hmm. But then you had the opposite, which probably no one will remember, which was boo.com was this website for clothing and sort of tons of money being spent. They were flying on the Concord back and forth to London. And when it launched, no one could use the site because no mm-hmm. one could figure out how to navigate it. Yeah. And so now, I think as a number of years ago, I gave a talk about how you could you could point to any number of companies, websites, Facebook, Airbnb, Amazon, you know, and they all had the large hero shot and nav across the top. And it's become kind of that standard templatized look. Mm-hmm. And it works. People know where to go to find things. It's just not very interesting anymore. But maybe that's what it is. It's utility. Mm-hmm. My colleague will say the web is dead. <laughs> um, one of my colleagues in the interaction programs, like the web's dead. Nobody uses the web anymore. And yet we still got to teach our students. They're still using websites on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So students have to learn that part, but I think they view it as like, ah, that's easy. But when they get in and design it, it never looks very good when they first do it. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of learning to walk before you can run, I guess. And, you know, we're hounding our students you know, about the rag, when you get on the web, you can't worry about that. I had a student ask me the other day, how do I control this? I said, you don't. At least not yet. Um, you can't. You still um, have hope one day, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a lot to know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I joke, I'm not sure I could have gotten into design school now um, as much as students kind of need to know and, and need to be adept at technology. And mm-hmm. it's hard to be a good technologist and a designer at the same time i think companies continue to look for that person the unicorn it's not as hard mm-hmm. so and i wonder that's uh going back to my question of the experimentation i'm seeing that at my school as well as that there's not as much innovation or experimentation as there used to be yeah and i wonder if it's there's a technological um emptiness or a technological gap that is happening right now where we know how to use the current technology and we've we've accepted the template of how to use the current technology and there is this very high threshold to learn ar vr and we're not there yet and so we we've the students are becoming stagnant of I know how to do this. I will learn to do this and I can get a job in doing this. And I, yeah. that's the, what I'll do. Um, and I think in that way, I too am, am a, um, about the technique. I'm about the, the craft of it all. And I get bogged down with the details of stuff. So what I tell myself at night is that focusing on the details, focusing on the rag, focusing on the hyphens, um, teaching how to use hyphens appropriately mm-hmm. and letting is about learning the techniques of um, of craftsmanship, of yeah. quality, of appreciation for quality. And hopefully they can translate that out of typography, out of graphic design or visual communication and into anything else that they want to learn in their lives. Yeah. 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 And I mean, there's a certain rigor that comes with all of that. I teach a sophomore type class at 60 students. They all, it'll be interaction, industrial design and VCD students. And 
In there, it does feel like a rules class, eight to 12 words per line. You need an end dash between your dates. You know, your letting should be X amount versus type size, X height, et cetera. And I think the students seem to really respond to that. In some ways, I feel like I'm this hardcore kind of taskmaster, um, but they seem to sort of get it. Like I'm learning rules. These are things I can actually see and I can see that they make a difference. Um, I have had people come to me with books that are printed by well-known typographers and say, is that a good rag? And I will say, well, no, it's not. So in the end, you can sort of point to like, well, you can know what a good rag is, but it isn't always applied, yeah. um, which is, you know, a good rag is not going to save the world and it's not going to, you know, make somebody's day better. Maybe just mine, because yeah. I'll see it and I'll appreciate it. But I think it's what you strive for. And as you say, it's what you should look to have all your design work be that level of, of detail. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, it's interesting that I feel like it's the level of detail that got, got designed to where it is today, mm -hmm. right? We've been talking about how design has gotten this larger place in the world and the demand for it is so huge, but at the same time, it's lost its experimentation in that, Yeah. which is what gets us to that innovative state. It's just ironic in that in some ways. Well, I think there's a push now. I'm a bit cynical about this, but there's a lot of companies that are sort of on board with design thinking. And so they want designers in these roles. And, you know, it's hard for me to separate my, I'm a designer, therefore I think. So what is it that we as designers do that seems so unique or so novel or so interesting for all these companies um, that are hiring our students? You know, when I came out of undergrad, Pentagram was where I thought, I needed to go. You went to a design studio and now most of our graduates are headed to corporations. You know, the Facebooks, the Airbnbs, the Pinterest, the Amazons, the Microsofts, and that would never have been where an undergrad would go. But so it's terrific that all these companies are seeing the value of design. And yes, you can be a product designer, a visual designer, a UX designer, a UI designer. There's all kinds of different designers you could be, but I think what we bring to the table, whatever job we're in, is the, the ability to iterate, the ability to try things, to talk about them, the whole critique culture, which is something we're just steeped in, in undergrad. And, you know, as you said, like, you talk about things and you critique them endlessly. And I almost feel badly telling, you know, students or cluing them in, you're probably not going to have that level of critique when you get out of here and you go to some of these other places. You might brace yourself going to your your manager, your boss to show them your ideas and they'll be like, yep, that looks good and move on. And that doesn't happen all the time, but I think um, there are students who come back that say, I miss this place. And mm -hmm. I think what they miss is the critique, maybe not the all nighter part of it, but I think they miss the discussion. I think that's what drove me back to graduate school was two years without someone telling me, oh, you should not do this or mm -hmm. you need to put more time into this or what have you, and getting the praise uh, yeah. and feeling that the praise is appreciated, but there's so much more to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there are days when I'm tired and, you know, uh, I got to go to school, but the second I'm there, it's really exciting and invigorating to talk to students about what they're doing. And I don't know that they're always excited and invigorated, but it's, <laughs> It's kind of, I mean, I'm not designing every day. I'm, I'm sort of in that role, maybe as you, you know, 
creative director kind of managing things so my fingers aren't pushing pixels around as much as I'd like them to be but it's really exciting to see students go from you know not knowing much to being just really capable students and that's that's pretty satisfying and UW has a lot of great alum out there you know school is just one part of it I, I think I when I graduated assumed I was I'd learned everything there was, and I could just go be a creative director at Pentagram, and that would be fine. And you just forget that you've, you've barely started learning, and every job is a learning experience, and you'll just be learning your whole life. Well, I think that's one of the joys and the follies I've always felt in myself of learning design is having that critique culture ingrained in you. It seeps into every aspect of yes. your life, for better or worse. It does. It does. <laughs> and so sometimes it's really hard to take a look back and focus on what's actually, what, what here is doing well, whether that's yeah. the program itself or anything yeah when I went to so when I went to grad school at Cranbrook you know like I said I was expecting to become something completely different like I in the end I really I like rigor I like discipline I, I wouldn't call myself a Swiss typographer in any way but I'm certainly not a radical you know typographer um and there was a nice quote I think it was Kathy McCoy that said you know look for an evolution not a revolution and I think what Cranbrook as a grad program taught me was just to be more open to ideas. It wasn't a sort of radical formal shift in any way that I worked. It was just me being more like, hmm, okay, I hear you. Let's talk about that direction or that idea. And I hope that I can instill that in my classes. I've had other colleagues um, who are not there now, but are very much the work should look a certain way. And there are 12 portfolios that look like they all came out of one class and I do not view that as a success mm -hmm. in any way or any way to measure like I don't need 24 Annabelle junior designers out there like that's not very interesting for them and it's not very useful for me oh definitely so yeah. I would much rather a student kind of find their way into a project into an assignment and put their own stamp on it Still with a good rag and still with good kerning. <laughs> but, you know, what is their personal perspective? And more and more, our students are really diverse. You know, our students are coming from, from different socio socioeconomic backgrounds, from different religious backgrounds, from different countries. They bring different experiences. It's no longer a group of 22 students that are from Seattle. They're from all over. So it's our kind of responsibility to be a little more aware of kind of what the issues are that these people might be facing um, and, and try and create projects and environments and classroom experiences that allow everyone to have a response to something rather than feel like it's there's one answer out there and you're I know what it is and you're all trying to figure out what it is to satisfy me. Is there a place or um, you know a place for discussion or learning from other educators that you've found has been good to share some of those learnings? You know, whether it be exercises you've done in class or things that you've learned along the way? Yeah, well, there's a teaching resource that I've been creating over a number of years. Um, it was through AIGA, and it really stemmed from sort of interesting, and maybe you can appreciate this as an educator's too, 
uh, it can be kind of lonely sometimes when you're creating projects. Like there's an enormous amount of autonomy. Like what you do in your class, no one's really standing over you on a day-to-day basis watching what you're doing. And so you can evaluate at the end whether the project was a success or not. But I have felt like over time, I've really needed a space where I could see what other people were doing. And so there's this teaching resource that I created. Um, It just launched. It's a website, teachingresource.aiga.org, for all you educators out there, um, where you can post assignments that you've done in class and, and reflections, but also deliverables. The impetus for this is that there are places where you can go to get for me personally as a longtime educator, I sometimes need inspiration for a class. Like I know I'm teaching a type class, but I don't want to do the same project I've done before. And so where can I go? I can I can go to other schools' websites and see their galleries, but then I just see the finished product and I don't really know what the assignment was. Mm-hmm. Or there's a few books out there that have assignments, but they don't have any of the results. And so the whole point of this resource is to be able to have see some sample images see what the assignment was. You're not giving away the farm. You don't have to give any lectures or anything. You just kind of, here's what the brief was. And then some reflections where people can talk about what went right and what went wrong. And the hope is that people can share things and kind of help everyone out, especially there's so many more schools and programs out now. There's lots of people who are part-time educators or people who are interested in teaching that don't know where to go. Mm-hmm. There's people like me who've been teaching for a while that maybe are a little... Um, burned out or need new new ways to inject a different approach to a project. People who are teaching in new areas of a discipline, like they've been a long time VCD person, but they might have to teach a UX UI class. And so the hope is that the teaching resource can help people. It just launched. So, you know, people are loading projects now. Mm-hmm. That's but, such a great idea. Um, you know, at PLU, I am the lone designer. Yeah. And it does get lonely trying to think of, wow, man, what, what is it that I should do next? Or should I just keep that same project or wh- whatever it is? And um, I'm looking forward to doing something like this. Yeah. Of contributing, but as well as, as learning from that. And I think there's more and more programs where you, you might be the only instructor. So who do you talk to? How do you evaluate whether a project is good or not? You know, is it just whether the student does a nice job, whether the student gets a, a good portfolio piece out of it? I think it's bigger than that. I think it's, you know, there's a thread of a curriculum, and I think just evaluating not just the pragmatic parts of I needed another week to bring in X, Y, or Z, or I should have had a, you know, a content expert come in, et cetera. I think it's just... Um, just a way to get a better sense of what's out there because yeah more and more there's people teaching by themselves or people who are starting programs and you know it can't just be sort of five schools that you look to there's people doing great work everywhere that was one of the things I learned about being on the DEC that there's terrific teachers everywhere who all struggle with different things so it's hopefully a community can be built out of it you actually come from two schools that I have admired uh, greatly, Cranbrook, because of their educational model of, of doing things, but also North Carolina State because of Meredith Davis, who, yeah. what a rock star, uh, amazing uh, to, to sit in the shadow of Meredith Davis is my dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was, um, well, she's she's just recently retired from NC State, but I think we've joked there's 
five students or five current educators could not pack in the amount of knowledge that Meredith has. She's oh really, yeah. Yeah. she's really a formidable figure in design. And I'm, I feel very lucky that she was my, my teacher. I'm not sure as an undergrad, I appreciated that. Um, I'm not sure that as an undergrad, you're really aware of kind of, you know, who your, your teachers are. They're sort of your parents, you know, you don't appreciate them until you're gone. Um, so Meredith is, she's wonderful. She's made a huge contribution. Cranbrook's just a different place, and it's funny because, you know, Cranbrook, there's no classes. There's no grades. You just work all the time. And I, when I came to UW, and Chad, you might appreciate this, having been a grad student, like, I don't really know how to make a grad program because my experience was Cranbrook, where you just kind of do stuff. You just make stuff. And so the grad program at UW is not set up to be that way, but I felt like, well, why aren't the students just making all day, and why aren't they just in studio 24-7, and it's just not that kind of environment. It's a research institution. You know, there's classes, there's grades, there's requirements, and um, it's just a different vibe. So when I sometimes rail about, you know, why aren't our grad students making things? Um, I think they're reading, I think they're researching, but their output is just different, because... You know, it was a different time at Cranbrook. But I yeah. remember in our first critique when I heard you say that, felt like it lit a fire underneath oh, yeah. me that was just like, oh, I need to be doing this part more too. <laughs> 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 Why? Which was great. And I felt like, I think it was after that first cr- critique we did, uh, like we went into that project in Chris Izuko's class and we totally like kind of blew up the brief he gave us. It was the, uh, the project Catherine and I took to China oh. and we just totally like reinterpreted it in a whole way. Yeah. I mean, I think you learn by doing and so much now is, can be automated. Like you don't have to make icons. You don't have to choose your photos cause they're right there on Flickr or Getty or wherever. And so you never pick out your camera and take pictures. So you never really understand what makes a good picture unless you're doing it yourself. And so I think that's what undergrad should be is learning by doing and making lots and lots of stuff. Yeah. I think grad can still be like that, but everyone has their own reasons for why they're in grad school. Not everybody maybe wants to be a doer or a maker. Yeah. One, I guess one last question. I mean, you, you touched upon this earlier at the beginning of the conversation we were talking a lot about, um, you know, being a designer first and educator second. And in that, I think one thing when I was in school there that I always admired about the faculty was that they had to balance that. And I felt like that was very helpful in them being a teacher was sure. that they were, they were doing it in some one way or another, but I never knew how they did it. <laughs> I don't think we do either. Balance is not a good term. It's sort of, <laughs> it's sort of interesting. Um, I think from the student's perspective, you know, we teach twice a week, so they see us three hours, two days a week, and maybe in office hours. So the rest of the time, we're probably just home with our feet up, you know, playing classical music and reading a book, and that's just not how it works. Um, I mean, I have a great job. I love my job, but it's, it's a lot of hours. It's like drinking through a fire hose, especially, you know, September to June. I don't teach in the summertime, but it's a it's a tough balance. You you know, you teach one day and then you mentally have to kind of check out of the teaching to go right into whatever project you're working on. 
to then go right back into teaching. So it has felt like at times two full-time jobs. Because if you're doing professional work, you know, for clients, they don't care that you're teaching. They want their stuff when they want it. Um, and then, you know, you have responsibilities to deliver a good lecture, a cohesive, you know, discussion in class to students. And so it's it's hard. It's a hard balance. I, I don't doubt there's lots of jobs out there that struggle with the balance. Um, but I think there's certainly a perception that academics have a pretty cushy sort of, yeah. I remember when I was younger, I told my dad, I want to be an academic or a professor like you so I don't have to work in the summertime. And oh. kind of patted me on the head and was like, that's not really how it works. And I, I, I see that. Mm. I see that. There's a lot of service involved. There's a lot of um, research and time demands in the university, the intangible things. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm tenured, so I'm, I'm in a bit more of a secure position than I would have been. And, you know, how lucky are we that you can have a job where you can essentially have a job for life, mm -hmm. um, after you've gone through promotion, but, uh, it's, it's hard work. It's a lot of work. It's satisfying most of the time, but it's demanding and the balance is off. The balance is off for most everybody in this country, I think, the work that we do. Hmm. Oh, most definitely, yeah. It's not the kind of job where at 5 o'clock I can check out and go home. I'm often, you know, up late prepping lectures and things. And I'm, and I'm fortunate now that I've been teaching long enough that I can reuse parts of them, but I'm just not the kind of person that wants to keep reusing the same projects and reusing the same lectures. I'm sort of always trying to figure out, I think I could always be better, but try to figure out how to make them current and relevant. So I don't want to use examples from 15 years ago for a student who doesn't know or care who David Carson is mm. or Sagmeister, who is it, you know, that people are looking at now. So I try to make things relevant, but it takes a long time. Um, so one thing we usually tie our episodes up with is just a quick, list of rec various recommendations of things that you're into right now. Oh boy. <laughs> so the first thing I'm curious about is what's something that you've read recently that you feel will be impactful or hasn't gotten enough airplay? Well, the AIGA, and this is um, with Meredith Davis's work, they've released a series of papers, white papers. It's called Design Futures. There's a website for it, but it's um, a number of tenants that the designer of 2025 and beyond should be looking to mm. to fit into or to be and they are not your traditional sort of design better at form better at ideation beauty utility kind of thing um, and so i would encourage designers to go read them mm -hmm. um, i think they've been useful i it's hard to wrap your head around some of the topics but i think it's worth it's worth exploring them designer of 2025 a recommendation of what to do best to unwind after a long day of educating run get out and exercise oh, yeah. i don't think our students exercise enough i think you got to get out and move i second that i know you do mm -hmm. he's a pretty fast runner well as someone who is uh, slowly working his way up to running what would be a good piece of music to run to? I think you need something that will match your beat. Renegades, Ex-Ambassadors is kind of the first on my run list. 
And it just has a beat that at least gets me going. Yeah. I, I can't do slow music. Yeah, there was a couple of Eminem songs that I remember trying to pound up a huge hill on one of my first half marathons and like, okay, this hits the beat. Mm -hmm. Like this, I can do. Yeah. No podcasts. You got to No podcasts. Mm -mm. Check and check. Except for this is design school. Subscribe on. Oh, that might be a good one. Yeah, that would be a good one. Well, Annabelle, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I have learned so much and have been an admirer for a while. And I'm, it's, it's an honor to have been here with you. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you both. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Annabelle. And that concludes year four of This is Design School. Our podcast is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each episode, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd want to hear in the future. Follow the podcast on Twitter at TIDS Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And share us with your designer friends. Bye for now. <laughs>